to all our moms. You're blessing us. We want to just welcome you all to the service. And uh, I've got a question for you this morning as you're gathering and uh, taking your seats. Who believes our God is greater? Who believes our God is greater? Who believes our God is stronger? And who believes our God is higher than any other God? Amen. Let's all stand as we get ready to sing together.
Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and your waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hell, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord.
aside his crown for my soul. Um, I think far too often, I know I do, and I think many of us do, we don't even realize the gravity of the reality of what God did for us in sending his son to die for us. Um, maybe if any analogy we would use would fall short, but if I used a human analogy and said, told you that, that I was going to go to prison next week and I was going to exchange my oldest son, Jonathan, for a criminal, and that Jonathan was going to take his place on death row and die in that man's place, and that man would be adopted into my family, you would say that I was insane. You would say that I was crazy. You would say that I was a fool. You would say that I was reckless. But even that analogy doesn't even live up to the depths of what God has done for us in sending the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to come down to this earth and to die on a cross for us. You guys can be seated as we uh, sing this song. If you want to sing along with us, that that's great.
been so long since I've uh, been here at the podium, maybe I should introduce myself. <laughs> uh, it's been over 44 years now since I began a public ministry of preaching and teaching God's Word, and I still get that, that awesome feeling just as I'm ready to come to the podium. Uh, I get that feeling of uh, respect for God's Word and awe that He could use me to be uh, one of His mouthpieces to proclaim and to teach His Word. And I, I thank you for your being here today. Uh, today is Mother's Day. 
not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything like that, but we have a lot of people here today who are mothers. And then we have some ladies here who are not yet mothers. Uh, we've had a couple of newlyweds last year or so, and so it won't be too long when we should be hearing announcements about the rugrats that are on their way. But uh, regardless of, uh, of these circumstances, every one of us, all of our ladies and all of our men, we all share in common that we've all had a mother. And some uh, can tell wonderful stories of your intimate relationship to a mother, others maybe not so much. Uh, but nevertheless, we can identify with the fact that women are so important as a part of God's plan to populate the earth. Um, and that's why we're here. And uh, being Mother's Day, I was trying to think of an appropriate story that I could tell that would involve women. And I, I ran across one that's really one of my favorites. It was, uh, I found it in one of Chuck Swindoll's book, uh, Strengthening uh, Your Grip, I think. And he was talking about his speaking in, uh, at the Moody Bible Institute for their Founders Week conference. Lots of people who had come. And uh, following one of his talks, uh, a lady uh, sent him uh, a note, a letter. And she said, Dear Chuck, I want you to know I've been here all week and I've enjoyed every one of your talks. I know that they'll help me in my remaining years. I love your sense of humor. Humor has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life. How could I have raised 12 children starting at age 32 and not have had a sense of humor? I married at age 31. I didn't worry about getting married. I just left my future to God's will. But every night, I hung a pair of men's pants on the bed, and I knelt down and prayed, quote, Father in heaven, hear my prayer, and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. <laughs> and just as you did, uh, Chuck had a great laugh. He liked it so much, he decided to tell his congregation. On that particular Sunday, uh, only half a family came. The father and son came, uh, uh, late teenage years. But the mother stayed home because they had a sick daughter. And Chuck related this story to the audience. And uh, that man and that son, they, uh, they heard it. And... Uh, he said that she got a note uh, from the, the mother a couple of weeks later. She was brief and to the point. She was concerned about her older son. She said that for the last week or so, he had been sleeping in his bed with a bikini draped over the footboard. <laughs> and she wanted to know if I might know why or if this was something she needed to worry about. Oh, well, God has his ways. But I'm glad you're here today. And uh, I do want to talk about a woman in Mother's Day. I, wanted, I wrestled and searched the scriptures, and I had five or six that boiled down to four, that boiled down to three, to two. And then uh, finally, I had to make a decision. And so I decided to 
deal with the life of Esther, who was the uh, queen of Persia and the protector of Israel. I've got it. All right, now I'm hot. Uh, back in 1939, when uh, Hitler and his dreams of world domination began aiming their guns toward England, a man named Church uh, Winston Churchill was appointed by the King of England to mobilize England's military uh, war machine against Hitler. That was May 10th, 1939. And that night, this is what Churchill wrote in his journal. He says, during the last crowded days of the political crisis, my pulse had not quickened at any moment. I took it all as it came, but I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that as I went to bed at 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And England made a good choice in Churchill because he led them in the defense of themselves against Hitler and a part of the Allies and ultimate uh, victory over Hitler and Nazi Germany. His words reminded me of something I had read in Scripture, and it came in the book of Esther. It's in uh, chapter 4, uh, when her cousin Mordecai is saying, For if you, Esther, remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Let me add that at this time, Another man in the kingdom named Haman, he had somehow allowed the king to sign a law into, into reality that could not be changed that was going to allow him to exterminate and annihilate all the Jews that were living in Persia. And there was a considerable number at that time. And so Mordecai is saying that... Uh, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. Uh, they're going to ransack, and that you may be a part of the annihilation, a part of the extermination. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He's saying, think about it. Maybe God has allowed you to become the queen of Persia for this very purpose, so that you'll have the means and the authority to defend Israel as a nation from the plot of, of, of Haman. Um, two verses later, verse 16, this is what Esther says in response. She says, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast night and day in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. You don't have permission just to walk in. You have to be acknowledged and be accepted. 
She says, but I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She says, that's my resolve. If it costs me my life, I will do all I can to protect my people. Because she was a Jewish resident. She was the queen of Persia, but she was a Jew. The book of Esther reveals her appointment with destiny. She'll become the instrument of God to save Mordecai, her cousin, and the captives of Israel from destruction. Did you know that the book of Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where the name God is never even mentioned one time? Uh, for that reason, a lot of people would dispute whether Esther ought to be in the Bible. You know, what makes it scripture? What makes it holy so that it is a part of the revelation of God. And uh, uh, the question is asked, why? And the presence and power of God is silhouetted throughout the book as the hand of God moves by his providential orchestration of events from behind the scenes to preserve his people. One of the reasons that it was accepted as the word of God was because when you read the book, it's unequivocally a book that God is involved historically, providentially, doing what no one else could have done to arrange for the Israelites who were in captivity, living in Persia, to be protected and kept from destruction. A great uh, historian... Nope. That shouldn't be there, honestly. Uh, a great historian named Edward Gibbons, he said, quote, History is little more than the registry of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Nothing but the bad deeds of the human race. And with all due respect to Mr. Gibbons, he never read the book of Esther. Because there's a lot more to history than just what he says. There's a lot of good things. There's redemption as God the creator protects his people and redeems his people and offers salvation to his people. We sang about it, about the substitutionary work that God did for us that gives us the chance to come to him by faith and find forgiveness. The historical background of Esther might help us a little bit. Uh, in 722, the northern ten tribes of Israel, they had split. Uh, they were finally invaded and captured by Assyria and scattered all over the place. A lot of them came down to the south to move into the land of Judah. In 586, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and took hostages, and Daniel was one of those. And, and they, were sent, they were taken back to Babylon uh, and uh, eventually in six oh, uh, well, 586, that was the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the final visit. But the, the Israel became a servant group taken into bondage to Babylon. In uh, 539 B.C., Babylon was finally overthrown by the Medo-Persians. And this was all predicted by Daniel in chapter 2 when he saw the great image, and in chapter 7, when he saw the great beast coming out of the sea, he said, Babylon followed by Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. These are great 
world empires that will come and run their course upon the earth. And Esther, the book of Esther takes place during the time of the Persian control of all the world, including Babylon. Um, in 538, Zerubbabel and the remnant returned to Palestine. Uh, actually, it's Zerubbabel and then Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel went back to deal with the rubble. Ezra went back to deal with the spiritual life of the nation. And Nehemiah went back to rebuild the wall to make the city safe again. But there are some people that did not go back. They stayed. And Esther and Mordecai were among that number. Uh, in 483, uh, well in 486, Xerxes, who was Ahasuerus, and his Greek name was Xerxes, he was the king of Persia. In 483, his wife, the queen, Vashti, she was deposed from her throne as the queen uh, because of disobedience. She publicly insulted the king by refusing to obey a command to make a public appearance. He had had a big blowout and a lot of drinking and all that. But he said, now I want you to see my wife because they say she was really something to look at. She was a beauty. Um, and then eventually Ahasuerus, he goes courting for a new queen. And uh, 478 B.C., Esther was chosen to be the new queen of Persia, a Jew, a Jewish woman, and now she's the queen of Persia. Um, Some people ask the question, well, what's the big deal? She, that Vashti was deposed just because she didn't want to go out and, and make a public appearance? Uh, and we're told, well, uh, well, we're not told here. <laughs> but in chapter 1, verse 15 it says, according to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she didn't obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and princes, Mamukin said, quote, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, quote, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in his presence, but she didn't come. And this day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So it was more than just disobeying the king. It was setting precedent for other women to follow that would lead to chaos in the life of, of the kingdom. In Esther chapter 1, verse 19, if it pleases the king, it says, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more than she. And that's when Ahasuerus went courting for a new queen. 
he decided to have an impromptu Miss Persia contest. And they rounded up all the good-looking young women, the virgins, and brought them all. And through the process, that's when Esther was chosen. Note that Esther didn't make known that she was Jewish. Uh, Mordecai, her cousin, had instructed her that she should not make that known. Um, but she won the Miss Persia contest. Uh, it was a process. Uh, I don't know where we're going now. I, I just won't worry about that. Um, in Esther chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, there was a lot of preliminaries and, and qualifying things they had to do. But after all that, the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. And so, fellas, if your wife is only in the bathroom, say, 20, 30 minutes, you're, don't complain. Uh, these ladies, six months uh, dealing with their cosmetics. And by the way, the word cosmetic, the Greek word, comes from the word cosmos, and it views the arranged world. It, it views the world having been fashioned and arranged as in its present form as opposed to the raw material it was when God first created. And so that's what cosmetics are for. It takes the raw material and arranges it into a purposeful, useful condition. And that's why I'm going to quit because I know I'm digging a hole. <laughs> but that's why you ladies are so beautiful. You, you, you put it all together. and we, we guys appreciate that. At least we ought to. But the king loved Esther more than all the women, verse 17 of chapter 2. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. So she set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, who are the players in this book? We've already talked about Esther. Her cousin was Mordecai. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and he raised Esther after her mom and dad died. We don't know the circumstances. But he was about 15 years older than her. They were first cousins. And he took her under his wing and helped her come to womanhood and coached her on all the things that allowed her to be Miss Persia and the queen. Um, he was in exile, but they say he was still devoted uh, to his God, Jehovah. He would not bow down to the gods of Persia and Media. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father or mother. And she was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. Another character in this book is a man named Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And that's Agagite, not Aggie. He wasn't from Texas A&M. Uh, he wasn't from Texas at all. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, 
and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. He was really number two in the whole realm of Persia. He was a big player, a big dude. Uh, who were the Agagites? Historians, they, they asked that question. And there's really two options. The first option is that the Agagites were descendants of the Malachites, who were descendants of the Termites. Uh, we don't know. But they were one of Israel's most bitter enemies who attacked them. They attacked them when they left Egypt uh, with Moses. They were ruthless, and their, their goal was to destroy Israel. God had to preserve them. John Wickham, Grace Seminary, he says, The fact that he is introduced here as an Agagite has caused many modern scholars to question the historicity of the account. For it would seem highly improbable that a descendant of an Amalekite king executed by Samuel in Palestine nearly 500 years earlier could turn up here as a Persian official. He's saying that it's just improbable that he is in the lineage of the Amalekites. So why is he called the Agagite? Well, the second option, the descendants of the Malachites, who were one of Israel's enemies, oh, I, I showed you, just showed you that one. Let me turn this back on. Are we on? Yeah. Here's the second one. An inscription was discovered in 1862 from the time of Sargon of Assyria, that was around 725 B.C., and it mentioned Agag as a place in Media, which later was incorporated into the Persian Empire. And then Gleason Archer, who has written uh, an outstanding introduction to the Old Testament, he says, quote, In light of this evidence, it is apparent that Haman was a native of this province, rather than a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag, as late Jewish tradition has supposed. This was accepted. There was a time when I thought that was the only credible answer. But uh, this recent uh, revelation of this evidence from the time of, of Assyria, it shows that there was in the country or the area of Media uh, a place that was called uh, Agag. And so he was Haman the Agagite. And that's probably the most probable. So Haman was an anti-Semite Persian, and he was promoted to be in the second position in the highest level of authority. And he would use that authority to attempt to exterminate and annihilate all the Jews that were living in Persia. He was full of pride, and he had a great hatred for Mordecai and for the Jews. I heard about a pastor who was preaching on pride, and a woman was touched. Uh, she was convicted of her own pride, and she confessed to her pastor. She says, I'm guilty of the sin of pride. I've sat for hours in front of a mirror admiring the beauty that God has given me. And the pastor replied, my dear lady, that wasn't pride. That was imagination. <laughs> I don't know who the woman is, so I can't, I can't say any more. But in Esther chapter 3, verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. 
for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. That's going to cause trouble for Haman. He's, nobody is allowed to do that. I am number two in the kingdom. And he's a Jew on top of everything else. He will bow down and he wouldn't do it. In verses 4 to 6. Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And the book of Esther at this point is going to begin to unveil Satan's scheme. God will, I mean, Satan will work through Haman to put a plot in action designed to annihilate all the Jews who were captives in the realm of Persia. And the first thing about this plot is that it was based on anger and hate. We saw that in verse 5. It was based on astrology and it was based on corruption. It says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3, if it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Why did he give him a signet ring? That was the equivalent today to credit card. You have all the authority in my name to do whatever you want to do to accomplish what you're asking to accomplish. Verse 11 says, in reality, Haman offered a bribe to the king. Ryrie says in, uh, in the footnote of his study Bible, it talks about uh, offer of, in reality, he offered a bribe to the king, the amount of which he expected to cover by confiscating the property of the Jews. And by the way, 10,000 talents of silver, if you use an average of 75 pounds uh, it all, and, and convert it to ounces, uh, it comes to, um, I had it written down, I don't see it, 12 million. It comes to 12 million uh, dollars, or uh, 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 a lot of money. An awful lot of money. And he's saying he'll give it to the king's treasury, but he plans on recouping it because in the plan he will take over all the possessions and, and any wealth that the Jews have and confiscate it and use that to cover the check that he's going to give to the king. Uh, the king wasn't even interested enough to inquire who these people were. He didn't mention them. He just said, I want to do this for... For, uh, hey, uh, for uh, Mordecai and, and his people. And Ahasuerus had no idea what he had just authorized. But Haman is going to take full advantage of it to kill the Jews. And verse 12 of chapter 3, this is the evil, the evil uh, edict 
Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governor who was over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So nobody can dispute this. This is coming from the top. The king is ordering this. And verse 13, I call this Satan's Pony Express. It says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. See, now we know where Wells Fargo got that idea. Uh, um, again, in the footnote of Dr. Ryrie, he says this, the edict was drawn up and letters were sent immediately by a postal system employing riders stationed at various intervals who passed messages along to each other, thus allowing the letters to reach the remotest part of the empire in time to prepare for the execution of the Jews. And in, ah, back up. In verse 14, Haman wants to make sure there's no excuses. A copy of this edict is to be issued as law in every province, and it was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was in confusion because something horrible is scheduled to happen. Um, it was at this point in the book, chapter 4 to 7, that we see God's providential deliverance. Here's where we see God working, even though God is never mentioned, beginning in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Uh, he wanted to let people know that he was disturbed seriously about what had been put into motion, affirmed by the authority of the king himself. And Esther's response, uh, she, in verses 4 and 5, she writhed in great anguish. It bothered her as well, and she's the queen. She sent clothes to Mordecai so he could get dressed and take off the sackcloth and ashes, and he refused in verse 4, and then she summoned Hathach from the king's eunuchs to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was so. Go get information for me. Find out what's going on. And Mordecai sent her a message in verses 7 and 8. Mordecai told the eunuch all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Esther, you're one of us. You need to go into that guy and, and you have to beg but tell him not to allow this 
to happen. And then Esther issued, issued a caution. She said, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. If you're not invited into the king's quarters and you just decide to go, unless he hands you the, the, the scepter for you to touch, you have broken the law and you will be put to death. So that was the risk. She says, and I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. He hasn't called me, so if I go to him, it's going to be risky. It's going to be very risky. And that's why she says in verses 13 and 14, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther, maybe you need to pray about it, but you're the only person in this kingdom that has uh, any kind of chance of approaching that king. You're his wife. You're the queen. And if you're in his sight, surely he will accept you as his wife. And she had told him, I haven't been summoned in 30 days. So that's going to bring us to verse uh, 16. And uh, Esther's courage is displayed in her response back to Mordecai. She says, go, assemble all the Jews and all those found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat any drink or, or, or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to take that chance because I have a chance to bring deliverance to my people. I want to be the instrument that the God of Israel can use to deliver the people of God who have lived in captivity all these years, going all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Um, she knew how brutal Ahasuerus could be. I mean, she was his wife. She knew him better than anybody else. Uh, they say that a, a father of two sons once tried to pay money to the king to keep his son, uh, sons out of the military. They were going to be drafted. And he tried to bribe the king to keep them out of the military. Ahasuerus took the man's money, then executed the oldest son. He cut his body in two and marched his army between the halves to show his contempt. So he could be very brutal. And he wasn't known as a promise keeper. Uh, he was known as a law giver. And uh, you do what you're told. She had a plan that would require fasting and praying. But Dr. Wickham, he says, prayer to God is not mentioned here. But it is obviously implied for mere fasting without the prayer that normally accompanies it would have been useless under the circumstances. Dr. Ryrie kind of agrees. He says, prayer was no doubt the purpose for this fast, indicating Esther's sense of dependence on God. She would not have fasted if it wasn't 
a part of the process of communing with God, praying to her God, asking him to use her as the instrument that would keep God's people from destruction. And so, beginning in chapter 5, her plan uh, is, is going into, into operation. In verses 1 and 2, it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. He was in a place where he could see, and that's where she wanted to be. And it says, it happened that when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. See, that's the hand of God. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. I'm not going to judge you as a lawbreaker. I'm going to allow you to come into my presence. And so Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Uh, Dr. Wickham said, if the book of Ruth, you're familiar with Ruth. That's the love story of Ruth gleaning in the fields for Boaz, putting on her Chanel number no. 5 to attract his attention. She eventually became his wife, and she is a part of the lineage of David and Jesus Christ himself. If the book of Ruth is a story of faith working through love, then the book of Esther is a story of faith working through courage. It's also a story of the unseen hand of a God of, of God of providence accomplishing his purpose from behind the stage of history. And I think that that's true in every sense uh, of, uh, of the word. Um, the invitation from the king, uh, she, well, she was allowed to go before the king, and it says in verse 4, she asked, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. I'm having a dinner tonight, and I'd like for you and Haman to be my special guests. What a pair to invite. The husband who loves her and the man who wants to destroy anybody who's considered a, a Jew. Um, they came that night. And Esther, for whatever reason, just felt that it wasn't, it wasn't time yet. Maybe she feared for her life. Maybe she feared for Mordecai's life. Maybe she said, I just need to give God more time to, to do what he can do better than, than I can. But she told them uh, that she wanted them to come the next night for a, a second uh, dinner. Uh, if you come uh, for the second chance... And they agreed to come. Um, and it kind of gives Haman time to, reveal, to revel in his self-pride and his hatred of Mordecai. It says in verse 9 of chapter 5, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then he recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons 
and every instance where the king had magnified him. Let me tell you how much the king likes me. Let me tell you what he's done for me and the positions that I hold. And how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even King Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. No matter how good and I've got it in my position, every time I see Mordecai, my stomach just, just begins to twist and, and grumble. And all I can think is, is negativity. This guy is, is ruining everything. And he needs to go and all of his people need to go with him. And so uh, Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows 50 cubits high made. And 50 cubits, based on 18 inches, that's 75 feet. That, that's, that's way up there. Have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Uh, we come to chapter 6, and one of the reasons maybe why the banquet was delayed was that you know, she wanted God to do something. Well, God did something. Because chapter 6 says, during that night, the king could not sleep. Uh, couldn't sleep. The king's insomnia. You know, here's a guy who's probably got the latest model of the select number super king size bed. He's got a Bose stereo with 16 speakers in his bedroom. He's got every, com every comfort you could imagine. And he can't sleep. He's got insomnia. And evidently, it was, he was convinced, I'm not going to sleep, so maybe I can find something uh, to do. So he says, he gave an order to bring the books of, book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And back in chapter 2 of Esther, we, we skipped over it. It says, in those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This is a coup. This is an assassination attempt. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Esther went and told the king what they were going to do. And she took no credit for it. She said, Mordecai. This man is the one who discovered this, and he wanted me to make sure that you knew. Well, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallow. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Uh, this uh, happened at, earlier in, in, the, in, in the life of Mordecai and the king, and so now we're going to have the $64,000 question. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing 
has been done for him. He saved your life. And you've done nothing to honor him or to reward him. Beginning in verse 4, I call this, timing is everything. So the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. And so he allows him to come in. Haman came in and the king said to him, What's to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? He doesn't mention what man. Doesn't have to. Haman already knows. Haman says to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Is there anybody that deserves more honor and, and accolades than me? I mean, I'm number two now. He's probably got it in his will that I'll get the kingdom instead of his sons. But he's just so puffed up with pride and, and, and selfishness. And so uh, that's how he's thinking. And uh, God says, be careful for what you wish for. In verse 7, then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, quote, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. And he's thinking, oh man, I've always wanted to ride that horse. And I've always wanted to wear that robe. And I've always wanted to go through the city and just hear all the... It's like Mardi Gras in, in, in Persia. Be careful what you wish for. That was his answer to the king. The king says, what would you do to a man that I want to honor? He said, this is what I would do. I would honor him this way. Verse 10. In football, this is called a pick six. You know what a pick six is? The king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> not you. Who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Um, in fishing, uh, most of the time, fish take a bait very quietly and subtly. When Tony Cooey and I go fishing for, for crappie, uh, we're catching nice, healthy-sized crappie. But all you feel is just a tap. That's all you're going to feel. And if you don't get him, he'll get the bait and go on to something else. They bite very, very lightly. And you have to watch that line. Sometimes you can feel it. Sometimes you can see it. But other times I go down to Destin and go in the back bay and with, with a guide that my son takes care of and we'll fish in the back bay for red, redfish and for speckled trout and Spanish mackerel. Now, if you've never caught a Spanish mackerel, they, they get pretty good size and they can swim 25, 30 miles an hour. And they don't come up and nibble. They come 15 feet away from your bait 
at a full speed gallop. I mean, they're in, they're in, in full, full speed. That tail is just working. And they hit that bait as hard as they can hit it. And my grandson, he almost lost the rod and reel. It all but just took it out of his hand. You've got to be ready for that because he will take it away. You're thinking, I'm going to get a tap and I'm going to catch a fish. Boom! And you may catch him, but it's, it's just different. Haman, he sees the ball. Uh, he's already beat the cornerback. He's open. And there's the ball. He's going to catch it and score. And just all of a sudden, the safety comes over and leaps up and takes it away from him and goes the other way for a touchdown. Pick six, they call it. That's what's happened. He, he decided what should be done for the man got, uh, uh, the king wants to honor. And then the king says, well, take all the stuff you have and go do it to Mordecai. But, but the reason I came this morning was I wanted to get your permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows that I built yesterday. And instead of hanging him, he's honoring him. Haman's pride and arrogance keeps him from seeing what he desired for himself that would be given to his greatest enemy. So, in verses 11 and 12, what does crow taste like? So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. This was the worst day of his life. I've had to help the king honor a man, a man that I would like to put on the gallows. And then in chapter 7, and we're getting close, in chapter 7, just when it gets worse, it can't get worse, it does. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen, and the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet. What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. That's how generous I'll be with you. Tell me what you want. She said, well, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been slaves, or sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. And the king responds, who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do this? What goes around comes around. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified. I would love to have seen his face. What? <laughs> he became terrified before the king and queen. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. I'm in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> I mean, I really am. And as Clint Eastwood would say, hang them high. When the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. He probably had had a few too many by now. 
and he was distraught, and, and he's in a panic, and he's stumbling, and he, he falls over on the sofa where Esther is sitting. And then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the words went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, who was before the, king's, uh, before the king said, Behold indeed the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. Good. He, he built it. Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. A couple of applications. Uh, there's more to the book. Not only is this plot averted, but uh, the king who could not undo the decree that he gave to Haman on that certain day to exterminate the Jews he couldn't undo that, but he made another decree that on that day, they were free to defend themselves. And, and uh, he helped them be prepared for that. And over 75,000 anti-Semite Persians perished on that day instead of the Jews. And they declared it a holiday that's celebrated even to this day. It's called the Feast of Purim. Uh, because... Haman would cast the poor, he would cast the, the lot on when to do what as a part of his plot. And now the Jews celebrate every year how God delivered them from Haman. God, what God? He's not mentioned. No, he's not mentioned, but he was there. And he had his hand on Israel. But one application is things are not always what they seem. When all seems lost, it isn't. See, genocide was supposed to happen, and it didn't happen. When no one seems to notice, God does. Insomnia. Well, you can't sleep. Why don't you read the history books and find out that you never did reward that man for what he did years ago? When everything seems great, it isn't. Haman thought he was getting ready to move into the penthouse, and he went to the outhouse and the gallows. The point is that even when God seems absent, he's there in sickness and in health, in poverty and prosperity, in promotion and demotion, in your darkest night and your brightest day. God is there. He's always with us. He's working the wheels of providence to accomplish his will. He did it for Esther and Mordecai, and he's doing it today for us. You heard about the man who was shipwrecked, and he took what was left of the ship and he built a small hut to protect him from the weather. And while he was out finding food, he found that his hut was on fire, and it burned, and he lost everything. He was devastated, and uh, he would have to sleep on the sand and start all over again. The next day, there was a ship anchored offshore. He said, how, how, did, you, how did you find me? He said, we saw your smoke signal, and we came to rescue you. See, things are not always what they seem. God works through circumstances to accomplish his purpose. His hand in the glove of history. God's name's never mentioned, but it's unmistakably present. Vashti's obstinance opened the way for Esther to be queen. Mordecai saves the life of the king, but yet it was overlooked. 
Haman cast lots, resulting in a one-year moratorium on the execution of the Jews. The goodwill of the king, he extended the scepter to Esther when she didn't have the right to go in. The king's insomnia, late-night reading, uncovering the oversight about Mordecai, and then his decision to execute Haman. God is present when he appears not to be. I think there are a lot of Esthers in the world today. There are a lot of them. I read Hebrews 11, and there's some women mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is mentioned. And Rahab, she's mentioned. But there are a lot of others, and I say, Lord, why aren't they in there? And I don't know. Maybe the book was limited to so much space. But uh, they were selectively chosen. But there were others who probably deserved to be there. Maybe Esther is one who deserves to be there. Because by faith, she exercised the courage to go and do what had to be done and to trust God to protect her and to accomplish what had to be done. I can think of a couple of people here in this church. Uh, I got to be careful because I don't have time to mention all of them. But I can think of two that just immediately stuck out in my mind. Judy Ambrosius. You hear Judy? Yeah, okay. I don't want to embarrass you. But by faith, she decided to go with Bob for a lifetime assignment in the jungles of the Philippines to produce a written Bible in a place where there was no written language. It took years and years and years, 20 years or more. And it was tough. But by faith, she, she accepted the fact that this is what God has called my husband to do and I am called to go with him and to be his helpmeet. And I've never heard you complain about anything other than Bob is cheap. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I can think of another one. Linda Self. Same scenario. She committed herself to honoring her husband and the call that God brought to them to go to South America to learn Spanish as an acquired language and to do all the things that they have done over the years. And you don't hear her complain. You just hear her talk about how faithful God is and how we live our lives by faith, every day by faith. We ask God to help us to do what we feel he has called us to do. So what about you? May God bless each and every woman in our church today, young or old. May he use you in extraordinary ways to make a difference in your marriage, in your family, in your community. I challenge you to be a Esther. Ask God to allow you to do what otherwise couldn't be done, but you're willing to let him do it through you to show forth his glory. There's a closing verse. Uh, well, uh, I've added Esther was queen of Persia and protector of Israel, but she's also a woman of faith. But when Jude ends his very brief letter, he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Uh, I was supposed to wait till after the, the band comes back up to show you that, so pretend like you didn't see it. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for 
what you teach us from your word. And we thank you on Mother's Day to focus on a great woman, Esther, and how you used her in extraordinary ways to preserve uh, her people who were in great number exiled in Persia. And Father, uh, thank you for uh, the lessons that we learn from Esther and for the challenge that comes to each of us to allow you to do in our life what she allowed you to do in her life. And um, may your name be praised and lifted up as we commit ourselves to serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.